0: just seems like we're all waiting on something everybody is whether it's like their promotion or the next opportunity or they're waiting for you know a sign from god or because they have something to wait for it keeps them there it doesn't yeah they don't ever hang themselves even though they say they're gonna do it all the time so maybe waiting for something or having something to wait for for all of us keeps us here and keeps us you know hopeful.
1: Every time they meet, it's oh my friend, like you know, come give me a hug. And I, I, think it's just really driving home the point that you need friends. You need good people you can count on, whether it be for your shoes to put them on, or to help you take them off, or even just to yeah. distract you with fake
2: insults. I think it's very life affirming. And again, going to Didi, but he starts to dance and exercise. They do their little jumping jacks for five seconds. But I think that we're able to find beauty from the ashes.
3: Hello, everyone. In today's recording, I'll chat with Stephen and Spencer and Cecilia about Samuel Beckett's play Waiting for Gatto. I wish I could tell you that the quote of the day comes from Samuel Beckett's Nobel lecture. He won the Nobel Prize in, I think, 1969. But when you go to the Nobel Prize website and click on the tab for Samuel Beckett's Nobel lecture, you see the following brief statement, which I will now use as the quote of the day, because I think it's highly fitting and appropriate. Quote, no lecture was delivered by Samuel Beckett. Unquote. <laughs> And for a discussion of maybe how and why I think this is an appropriate epigraph to the works of Samuel Beckett, let's go into that chat about Waiting for Gatto. Hi, Cecilia. Hi. How are you? Good. How are you? Good. And hello, Stephen. And hello, Spencer. Hello. Good to see all of you. One thing that I wanted to make sure that we we do today is to talk about the ways in which this text, this play, can help us summarize some of the themes we've seen come up in previous texts. So I'll, I'm going to talk for about 90 seconds right now, and then I'll ask you a question. I'm reminded of that moment at the very end of King Lear, where Lear brings in the body of the dead Cordelia, and Kent, seeing this, says, is this the promised end, which I think we can take to mean is this the end of times? Is this the apocalypse? And Edgar says, in response to Kent's comment or image of that horror, is this what the end of times will look like? Uh, It's easy to watch Waiting for Godot and think of it as a kind of apocalyptic or post-apocalyptic play. It was written in the years after World War II. The scene is just strewn with rubble and there's one scrawny tree in the background. Yeah, So I think this play is in some ways a vision of a kind of end. And there are lots of other King Lear echoes. The first words of this play are nothing to be done. And the word nothing comes up again and again and again. Remember when they ask that boy, what does Godo do? The boy says he does nothing. <laughs> That's one of uh, Beckett's favorite words in this play. I think he has Lear in his brain when he's writing this. Of course, blindness is a theme. Pozzo becomes a kind of Gloucester who gets blinded and is led around by Edgar slash Lucky. But Lucky maybe is also Edmund because of how abused he is. Hmm. I think maybe Gatto is Lear. I mean, I'm now like doing an annoying reading and interpretation of this play, but you know, those moments in King Lear where King Lear after act one or after scene one, he abdicates his authority, his power. And immediately we noticed this palpable difference in the realm, in the kingdom. Everyone is fighting for, everyone is competing for authority. And the kingdom is immediately more chaotic and no one knows what to do or who is in charge. This is a play in which there's a vacuum of authority, leadership. Where is Gatto? When is he coming? Anyway, so I want to make sure we do three things in this conversation. Um, Talk about the ways in which this text summarizes themes we've seen. Uh, The second would be talk about what this text does that other texts haven't done. Why is this such a weird play? I want to talk about that, its particularity. And also, of course, I want to talk about how it could teach us to live. I, I have this little theory that all great art is affirmative. I, I watch this, as bleak as it is, coming away with renewed optimism and confidence uh, about the human race and our ability to survive. That's my reaction. So maybe I'll just start by asking you to talk about how you reacted when you watched this. Which aspect... <laughs> Which of its many strange aspects stood out to you as its most strange? That will be my first question.
2: Yeah, I guess for me, the weirdest part was how much silence there was. Because I feel like with a lot of plays, it's always just there's something going, something going. And then this time, it actually just let us have that silence. Excellent. I think that's a great comment
3: nothing happens when they're talking and then when they stop talking more nothing happens you know so silence for sure which could be a synonym for nothing I don't know if we want to beat that metaphor to death uh Spencer and Cecilia how how would you say you reacted to the strangeness of this play or what stood out to you as most strange
0: it was kind of weird watching a play about some bored people with nothing to do <laughs> like Usually, I don't know, in what we've read, there's like, there's a plot or there's, you know, yeah. there's an event that comes and brings controversy or brings suffering. But the suffering that we see in this is like boredom, and like Very good. Just waiting and having nothing to do and, and like being unsure of when the end is going to come. I don't know if that makes sense.
3: It totally does. It's as if all of the it's as if there was a plot, like a, an inciting action, a rising action, the climax, a resolution, and then waiting for Godot starts. And yeah. it's like what, what what are we doing here? It's all over. Something has happened and it's all over and we just have to bide our time.
1: So I actually have a lot of experience with this play. Um, I was able to take a class where we just did a semester's worth of reading and analyzing and it was intense. (laughs) It was a really good class, But I think the interesting thing for me with like the silence and this idea of suffering and nothing is, I mean, it obviously comes in part two of the play, but I wonder if their silences even in the first half are actually filled with those dead voices, as they put it. And the time that they try to fill and they try to actually do something and distract themselves is actually a distraction from those dead voices, which kind of makes us wonder, with the timing of the play coming just after World War II, in which Beckett actually volunteered, are they the voices of the dead, like, who were part of the battle?
3: I ask you, that's, that's very good, I ask you about amnesia. They can't remember. Sometimes they can remember, and sometimes they can't remember. They don't know what day of the week it is. Estragon seems to constantly forget what they're doing. What are we doing here? Why can't we go? And Vladimir has to constantly say, we're waiting for Gatto. Oh, yeah, that's right. I forgot. So they're always forgetting. Estragon, there's that wonderful moment where he says, um, Estragon says, our savior. And Vladimir says, our what? So they don't remember. Like all of religious history seems to have been forgotten. Where they have vague memories of a past where they used to tend grapes in a vineyard. But that's quite hazy. So why is amnesia such a prominent feature of these characters? What does that say about human nature or the human condition or the 20th century? Is, is this the kind of historically specific feature of the human race? Why can't they remember?
1: A lot of what I analyzed, even in Beckett's past, was not memorable, was actually a lot of painful. Like he had a lot of near death experiences mm. and in a few of his other plays and things like, but this one specifically, they don't remember their past. And these two, um, Didi and Gogo or Vladimir and Astragon, they're not allowed to leave the stage. Like they even go, they move around, but they don't ever actually leave. Whereas, and they don't remember anything. Whereas you get lucky and, uh, Pozzo. And they leave and time actually passes for them. When they return, like they remember and they're pondering about the good old days. And Estragon is like, the good old days, the what? And Vladimir is like, let him him reminisce. Like he's remembering the good times. And then he says something in Latin that I can't remember. And he's like, oh, how it must have been awful. And it's just kind of interesting that I wonder if they kind of just block it out.
3: I mean, I think that certainly you're onto something, the tra- historical trauma of the war, I'm, I'm hesitant here because this is kind of like a play that is like uh, Kafka's The Metamorphoses where it, it has a certain Rorschach blot quality to it and it invites you to say, this is a symbol for that and this is a symbol for that. It invites these kind of interpretations, you know, historical interpretations or individual psychological interpretations. When traumatic things happen to us, we block them out. This is true. When traumatic things happen to a nation, the nation has to deal with how much to remember, how to forget. Yeah, so I think you're on to past trauma. They're floating in this bubble that seems to have escaped from time and history and even place. Where where even are they? What did you make of this?
0: So there was a line that Estragon said. That's when of uh, Vladimir's trying to like bring back Estragon's a memory. He's pointing out like the tree and the shoes and everything. And Estragon says, where, like, what is there to recognize? I've been walking around or I've crawled around in the muck all my yeah. life. So I think, you know, maybe as humans, we see our journey in life as just walking through the muck sometimes. Yeah. And when we look back at our life and see it that way, it's hard. It's hard to remember anything memorable.
3: What are we doing here? I can't remember which of them. Some One of them says, and they're kind of wonderfully, they are slightly distinct. I think Vladimir or, or Didi is more impatient. He's slightly more, he has this prostate problem. That's maybe one reason he's constantly having to pee, but he seems more anxious. And Estragon, I think, I think I'm getting them right. They are slightly interchangeable, is more kind of um, subdued. One of them says, what are we doing here? That is the question. This kind of revision of Hamlet. What are we doing here? That is the question. Do you think that the play has embedded in it an answer to that question? What are we here in life for? If you asked the play, not Beckett, because we can't read the mind of the dead, but if the play was a person and you asked it, what are we doing here? What is the purpose of life? What would it say? Are there answers to this question that it gives?
0: Well, I think Vladimir would say we're waiting for Gato. <laughs>
3: Very good, but but I want to instantly say what does that mean? But then yeah, right, the yeah. other half of my brain wants to say no, no, no. Let's not interpret it. We're waiting for Gato. In in what ways? What, yeah, what does this mean? What is the purpose of your life? You're not waiting for Gato, but is this? You know, one of my other pet theories is that a masterpiece is about all of us. How is this about you?
0: Yeah, I, that's a hard question. I've I've been thinking about that. I could maybe argue that we're all just seems like we're all waiting on something. Everybody is, whether it's like their promotion or the next opportunity or they're waiting for, you know, a sign from God or um, something religious. I think I first think that, but then this play makes it seem like whatever that is that we're waiting for will never actually come. So I think maybe we can see the value in waiting because it seems like because they have something to wait for, it keeps them there. It doesn't, Yeah. Like, they don't ever hang themselves, even though they say they're going to do it all the time. That's right. They don't just leave and wander off. So maybe waiting for something or having something to wait for, for all of us, keeps us here and keeps us, you know, hopeful, even if it never will come.
3: Yeah. I want to elaborate on that. But Stephen or Cecilia, what are we doing here, according to this play?
2: Yeah, I think going off of what Spencer was saying, we're always trying to arrive to someplace, or at least I am like trying to arrive as a filmmaker or trying to arrive as a person and like, I'll buy a new lens or I'll buy something. And I'm like, I just need this one lens and then I'll be good. And so then I buy it and then I'm like, wait, yeah, I could become a better filmmaker if I bought this. And yeah. then one of my favorite parts is when Didi says we're happy. And then they like both decide they're happy. But then they're both waiting and then they're like, yeah, we're not actually happy.
1: Excellent. Yeah, I really like that. Um, and building off of that, I think it might actually tell us waiting is good. You can you can wait and take your time with things, but don't forget to actually go out and do stuff. It's not worth it to wait on your dreams or aspirations um, if you never actually achieve anything with it.
3: Yeah, we've we've seen this before in text like live now, you know, uh, uh, the death of Ivan Ilyich live now. Are they happy? This is another question. I, I rewatched it this morning. And it stood out to me that they're not unhappy. Do you think that's fair? I mean they're they're not ecstatic. I I don't I don't want to
2: feed you an answer. I want your unprompted responses. Do you think they're happy? It kind of reminds me of my mission I served in Finland and it's rated like the happiest country. Oh, really? And we were in one of the one of the cities that was supposed to be the happiest city. And you walk around and nobody's smiling and elated. They're just mm-hmm. content. They just, they have a happiness of contentment. So I guess they are waiting, but like happily. Okay.
3: So it's not ecstasy. It's not 24 hours of ecstasy, but yeah. it's a kind of quiet. Yeah. Contentment is probably the word. And you, Stephen, are you saying that you feel that uh, Vladimir and Estragon are content? Maybe happy is an overstatement.
2: Yeah, I would, Spencer, I would say content.
1: Going along with that, I do think that contentment is actually a way you could describe happiness or mm. just not desiring or needing anything. And I mean, obviously, they have desires and needs. Like, obviously, um, is it Vladimir? I think he's he's the one with the smelly breath, you know, when they're talking to Pozzo and Estragon's got smelly feet, right? They have right. problems and ailments that they would like to be fixed, but sure. they don't bother sure. them consistently enough to be stopping them from just being
3: I think so. I mean, they're, you're right, Cecilia. They um, and they have these nightmares, and they're lonely. They get lonely. Something weird happens between the acts where clearly they get separated overnight. Remember, and when they when they reunite, one of them is mad at the other that he abandoned him. So they they can clearly suffer loneliness and fear and pain. But I'm, I was quite surprised this morning when I rewatched it at how much joy they're capable of or at least contentment, how much contentment they're capable of. I want to ask about performance, and maybe that can help us solve this problem. Or maybe that can help us answer this question about where they're deriving contentment from. But I want to go back to something Spencer said about, and both of, and Cecilia and Stephen, you elaborated on. Yeah, that's the takeaway for me from this play. Samuel Johnson, the great English critic, said this wonderful thing, We live not from pleasure to pleasure, but from hope to hope. This was his phrase. So it's not like we can dwell in a pleasure and then we move and we dwell fully in that pleasure and then we move and we dwell fully in that pleasure. Our life is a series of I want this and I hope for that. And if only I had this. And we just hop from want to hope to craving to desire Mm -hmm. instead of being able to live in the moment. My daughter had a very similar experience just yesterday to you, Stephen, with this lens that you described. She earned some money by doing some chores. And so we took her to the store. We let her buy this, you know, any small little toy that she wanted that she could afford with her new money. Um, and she wanted this thing that she didn't have enough money for. And we tried to convince her, look, if you get it, even if you got this, you would go home wanting something else in about five minutes." There's a, cra- there's a hole in every human psyche that is never fully satisfied. I mean, unless you're Buddha, perhaps. So perhaps this play is enacting this psychological reality of waiting, waiting, waiting. This is what all humans do waiting, waiting, waiting. Can we talk about God for a minute? I said I want to talk about performance, but I think we have to talk about religion, waiting for God. Beckett's no dummy. He knows that the first three letters of this word are G-O-D. And remember what the boy says? I think Estragon, or I can't remember who. Vladimir asks the boy, does he have a beard? Is it a black beard or a light beard? And the boy says, it's a white beard. So Gatto has a white beard. (laughs) This is not a stretch. I am not performing some weird overstretch of interpretation here to say that Gatto is God. What religious arguments do we think this play could be making?
0: I can tell you something. I had a question on.
3: Please ask it. Wondering. Yeah.
0: So the little kid he tends the goats, and his brother tends the sheep. And yeah. I, there's some some religious crossover there, probably. Indeed, yeah. So the sheep are generally like the blessed, and the goats are the damned. But why does God beat? The, the like the sheep herder. And what a good question. Also, yeah. Anyway, so that and also the fact that Vladimir and Estragon's messenger between them and Gato is is like the keeper of, or the the herder of the bad people, the goats.
3: Well, I've, I've never thought this through, Stephen uh, Spencer. This is you're you're raising a very good point. This biblical parallel of the sheep and the goats and separating the sheep from the goats. Is it clear though,
0: this
3: play is quite surreal in a, in a certain way, that the boy is the same boy? Because when, I mean, how many boys, maybe there's an infinite regress of boys, you know? When the boy, the second day, he says, Did you come here yesterday? And he says, No, I didn't. But yeah. an identical looking boy did. So it's difficult to answer your question, Spencer, because it's difficult to know if this is just another instance of amnesia. Or if there are two distinct boys or if this is some kind of dream or if this is like a matrix type or a ground, maybe this is a groundhog day universe that gets reset. We think, no, there's evidence that that's not true because at the end, at the beginning of act two, there's leaves on the tree. And when Potso comes back, he's blinded. So things are different in act two. I'm not answering your question. I'm evading it. I'm totally evading it. Do Cecilia or Stephen want to not evade it? How do you respond to Spencer's observation?
1: I don't have a specific answer for Spencer's question. I actually hadn't thought about that before. It's kind of interesting. But as far as Godot being God um, and like the references to religious uh, aspects throughout the play, yeah. it is interesting to me that Vladimir actually mentions the two sinners or the two... Uh, yeah, I don't the thieves. The thieves, there we go. And being on the cross by Christ. And they're like, he he actually brings up, he's like, only one of the gospels actually says anything about it. And yet everyone believes that one gospel. Why don't they believe that there's nothing because of the other three, the majority? And I don't know if that exactly ties in with Godot being God, but in my opinion, it actually could um, in the sense that maybe the play is kind of getting at God might be there but he doesn't necessarily always step in
3: yeah if
1: you want him to and you just hope that he's real and hope that he's there and hold on to that one that one gospel that's actually telling you what you <laughs> want to hear not only
3: not only is it one out of four gospels that that mentions this but it's only one out of two thieves and and like it's not bad odds it's not horrible odds. you know we have a 50 50 (laughs) chance of getting out of this i
1: don't know just like holding on to that one thread it was interesting i think
3: you're right cecilia i think gato clearly exists right i mean It it could be easy to look at this play and say, oh, well, it's an atheistic play. It's making an argument that there is no God. The argument of it, it would be very understandable for someone watching this play to come back and say, well, this is a play that is in a universe that clearly is arguing that God does not exist. But I think God
2: clearly exists.
3: How do we know that he exists?
2: Yeah, those were definitely my initial reactions. I was like... Is this play about atheism? Like I'm confused. But then (laughs) the little boy, he keeps talking about Gatto existing. And it sounds like these people have been waiting for who knows how long for Gatto. And it seems like Didi is the only person who remembers because he remembers the boy, he remembers Lucky, he remembers what happened the day before. And at the beginning, I was like, oh, clearly this is atheism. But then when Didi Kept remembering these things, and no one else did. I was like, "Huh, maybe this play is touching on our need for remembering." Oh, very good. Yeah, one of the details that Didi Dee Dee remembers is the hayloft. He
3: tells Estragon, "Gatto will come and we will go back to his place, and he'll let us sleep in his hayloft on the warm, soft hay." And then, when the boy comes, one of the questions that I guess Didi Dee Dee asks the boy is, "Where do you sleep?" or something like this. And he says, "I sleep in the hayloft." And he, Didi turns and looks at Gogo. It's like, see, I told you, I knew there was a hayloft. I'm not wrong. So he's clearly remembering facts about Godot that are being corroborated. Right out of the mouth of two witnesses, we have some proof that Godot exists and is the owner of some wonderfully soft hay, loft of hay. And I think the boy is, the boy comes from somewhere. Cecilia makes a wonderful point that you yeah, have Vladimir and Estragon are trapped but the other characters aren't. They, they come and go. The boy clearly comes from somewhere and has a message. And I trust the boy. I trust that the boy is bringing a message from God. Oh, the boy is clearly Elijah or John the Baptist. You know what I mean? Or something like I come I come telling you that just wait a day longer and God oh, will come. God, God oh, will come. I promise he will come. Boy as John the Baptist, God has a white beard. So I think that this play isn't arguing that God doesn't exist but what is our relationship to him like according to this play?
1: Yeah, I think that's a really interesting question and even with that like there's the whole theory of will we know God or Christ when we see them? Oh, very and interesting. The fact is that they don't actually know that much about him. They've got they heard they've heard these different things and actually have these expectations but even when Pozzo comes um, Estragon goes up and is like, Are you Godot? Very good. And Vladimir doesn't actually say anything about it. And possible's like, Who is this Godot you speak yeah. of? Like so clearly they don't know what he looks like. They even ask the boy, does he have like a black or gray beard? You know, and he's yeah. like, It's white. So for all they know, he could have actually come by on some scene that we're not seeing in the play, and they lo- wouldn't have recognized him.
3: I love this. You know, I come like a thief in the night, or I will come like a thief in the night. We, we remember this scripture, don't we, from the New Testament. And uh, it's up to us, slash, Dodo and, and uh, Gogo and Didi to be vigilant, you know, and to ask, are you him? Are you him? Um, some people think that maybe Potso is him, but I don't think Potso is him because Potso says, I'm Potso. Potso can't be him. Potso doesn't have a white beard. He's there. He clearly cares about, I think Godo cares about. Vladimir and Estragon otherwise he wouldn't send the boy I, I I just have to take the boy at his word when the boy says I've come from God with a message I have to, what else can we do is there reason to not trust the boy this is a leading question now because I have told you I, I I've decided that I trust the boy
0: I'm remembering a conversation between Vladimir and Estragon about I think Vladimir' was talking about a conversation he might have had with Goddo Estragon asks. What he said, and and, uh, Vladimir's like, nothing in particular. And there's this ridiculous kind of back and forth about how God said really nothing and didn't promise anything, but he said that he was going to come. Is that ringing a bell?
3: I'm now searching for this (laughs) moment in the text. Uh, Here, maybe this is what you're talking about, Spencer. Vladimir, let's wait till we know exactly how we stand. Estragon, on the other hand, it might be better to strike the iron before it freezes. Vladimir, I'm curious to hear what he has to offer. Then we'll take it or leave it. Estragon, what exactly did we ask him for? Vladimir, were you not there? Estragon, I can't have been listening. Vladimir, oh, nothing very definite. A kind of prayer. So is this what you're talking about, where they asked Gatto for something, but they don't really remember what, or they don't really remember what Gatto said? Maybe this isn't the exact moment you're talking about, Spencer. No,
0: it is. is. just. So it sounds like, yeah, a prayer. I forgot that they said that, but it seems like they had had a real conversation or at least interaction with Gato at one time, and then somehow amnesia or something caused them to forget everything. He forgot what he looked like if he had seen him at all. I don't know.
3: I'll keep reading Estragon. And what did he reply, Vladimir, that he'd see Estragon, that he couldn't promise anything, Vladimir, that he'd have to think it over Estragon in the quiet of his home. Vladimir, consult his family, Estragon, his friends, Vladimir, his agents, Estragon, his correspondents, Vladimir, his books, Estragon, his bank accounts, right? So they've asked God for something, and the answer is, I'll think about it. This is, is this not our relationship with the divine? I don't know. I, I can't say what your guys' relationship with the divine is. I recognize a lot of my own relationship with the divine in this relationship. From time to time, I get some signal that something there. There's something there. I don't remember what. I couldn't exactly describe what he looks like or what he wants from me. But I don't. I don't want to leave in case he comes. <laughs> Just this vague, indefinite, very distanced, very detached. Just ringing. Is this striking true to anyone but me?
1: No, I can actually see it. It's um, the conversation he has is actually almost remnant of prayer, in my opinion. Like you can sometimes talk to God, but not actually. You can receive exactly. your own answers, and that would explain why Estragon wouldn't know anything about it. But it would also be, I don't know, it can, it can also mean you're bringing your desires to God and not necessarily getting an answer that you want right away or getting the same kind of immediate even response, I think. Um, it's just kind of an interesting comparison.
3: This allusions to the fact that God has agents or um, correspondents. And maybe the and the, uh, you know messenger boys and these are the people through whom we can only get glim- glimmers of what the transcendent is or wants of us. You know this play is so monotonous. You know what I mean? It's so full of repetition on the level of dialogue. It's monotonous, but also on the level of structure. It's monotonous. The, the two halves are different, but they overlap to a, to a large degree. A couple of strange references here. I'm about to make. There's this wonderful moment in *Downton Abbey* when. What's Maggie Smith's character's name? Some duchess of something. She is lamenting the difficulties of parenting. And the way that she describes the, why parenting is difficult, she laments the, the quote, on and onness of it. It just never ends. My wife and I snatched on that and repeat it to each other when our kids are particularly difficult. The on and onness of it just never ends. Life is monotonous and boring. David Foster Wallace gave this wonderful um, graduation commencement speech. We're in graduation season, so I can refer to this. Maybe you've listened to this. He gave this wonderful commencement speech in which he tried to persuade college graduates that long stretches of your lives will feel tedious, painfully tedious, painfully monotonous, painfully purposeless and boring. You will have to, for the next 60 years, get up, Go to the store, go to go to a job that maybe you don't love, to save money, to buy stuff that you don't really need, go to the store, wait in line, you know, pay bills every day, day in, day out, year after year. You know, this is life. We might not have to do it in literal rubble, but it can feel very, very tedious and monotonous. I want to ask I, I say that this play is life-affirming. I don't think this play is a downer. I think it's very realistic about the tedium of life and the pain of life. If I asked you how this play affirms life or can it teach us how to live what would you say can this play teach us how to live knowing full well that that, that sorry i'm now interrupting you <laughs> that's not its job necessarily you know i don't think beckett is writing self-help book. he's writing art and art is made to be perceived and experienced but is there anything in the experience
2: of this play that you come away with thinking oh i, I need to live in the following way yeah i think i think it's very life-affirming and again, going to Didi, uh, maybe, maybe I just think he's the optimist of the play. Maybe I just love that character so much, but he starts to dance and exercise. They do yes. their little jumping jacks for five seconds, which yes. is more than what I do. <laughs> but I think that we're able to find beauty from the ashes, if I can say that.
3: I'm glad you did. I mean, they are kind of in ashes, kind of literally. And I love the games that they say they find beauty. And I think part one aspect of beauty that they find is play. They love to play. They play games. That wonderful moment in Act Two when it's like, okay, let's abuse each other. And they call each other names. And they're like, okay, that was fun. Now let's make up. And then they apologize and embrace. That made me so happy. <laughs> it's really great, isn't it? And even Potso and Lucky are obsessed with putting on a good show. You know, Pozzo, Pozzo does this kind of performance and then asks, Wasn't that good? Uh, Vladimir and Estragon both say, Yeah, it was pretty good. And Potso's like, Oh, I was worried that maybe it got a little bit too extreme, or I can't remember exactly what he says, but he kind of critiques his performance. And they're both like, No, it was Trey Bond. Trey Bond says Estragon, I think. Yeah, it was really good. Two thumbs up, you know, like Siskel and Ebert st- sitting there in the theater. Right? Two thumbs up. So one of the ways in which they find meaning in life is to play. And when I ask the question, Are they happy? I think the answer, is partly no for that reason because they know how to have fun in the ashes they know that they can still make jokes they can still pretend they can still dance i think that really matters what else what else do we what other moments in the play do we see and we think oh this is how i can live this is good this is wisdom
1: going along with playing and that i think really it discusses the importance of friendship Vladimir and Estragon several times mention, like, you're better off without me. Really, really, you are like, you could just kill me now and I'll I'll just, you can go on your own. I'll be fine. Or like, you'll be fine. You'll be better off. But they keep coming back to each other and they realize and recognize that even though they might be better off in certain situations alone, they really don't want to be alone. Vladimir wakes Estragon if he falls asleep. He's like, what'd you do that for? He's like, I got lonely.
0: Yeah.
1: (laughs) I really like that scene in act two, actually, where I think Astrogon had just woken up or something. And then he runs to the edge of their plateau, as they call it. And he's like, there are men coming up this side. And then, you know, there are men coming up on the other side. And then after that clears, he's like, you were just like having a vision or something. I don't know. Mm. But they're like passing each other. They're like, oh, it's you again. You know, when they go and hug and then they go and look at the other side. And they're just remembering, even if it's, I don't know if it's amnesia at this point, like, I don't remember seeing you, but like every time they meet, it's, oh, my friend, like, you know, come give me a hug. Yeah. And I, I think it's just really driving home the point that you need friends. You need good people you can count on, whether it be for your shoes to put them on or to help you take them off or even just to yeah. distract you with fake insults.
3: And that that's human connection and love, I think I'll use the word love. Can I use the word love? Is that an overstatement for their relationship? No,
0: I think, no, it's, I think it's perfect. I
3: think they love each other. Love is indestructible. In a world that has been reduced to rubble, um, these two tramps have nothing. Uh, Samuel Beckett was on the record saying that he loved Charlie Chaplin films. So I think the tramp is a huge influence on this. Also kind of Laurel and Hardy. It's that wonderful scene where they're trading hats. Another moment of play. Even if you're a tramp that has nothing and has to live in rubble and you don't know if what you're waiting for will arrive, love has not been extinguished. And what's better in life than love? You know, so it's like the most precious thing is indestructible. You still have it. That's that's affirming to me. That's life affirming to me. Uh, Estragon asks, are we tied to Gatto? I love that question. Are we tied to him? Maybe, I can't remember where exactly in the play he asked this, but You could ask this after he sees Lucky and Potso, Lucky being tied directly to Potso. I mean, what is the relationship between Lucky and Potso? Is it, how do you react to that? It's quite abusive and horrifying. Yeah, what do you make of it? Is is it in any way similar to the relationship between uh, Vladimir and Estragon?
1: I want to say it's kind of the antithesis, the antithesis of friendship or actual bonds, I guess. But at the same time, there are even parts where, they seem to have some sort of shared spark, but I think the interesting thing to me is actually they, um, Vladimir and Estragon, as they watch how Potso was treating Lucky, they get very like hurt and offended yeah. for him. They start to pity him. Yeah. But then Potso was able to just kind of, with a whim, kind of just talking them out of it. He's like, "Oh, if you're if you're really feeling bad for him, just go go wipe his tears," and then he ends up kicking him. Exactly. You, you kind of wonder, did Lucky turn out like that because of how he was treated? Is that why he's reacting in such a way? Or is it just a character default, I guess? I don't know.
3: It's kind of, um, do you see Lucky as more Edmund or more Edgar? I think Potso is clearly Gloucester. He, I mean, he has to be, right? He's this slightly older man who gets blinded and has to be shown the way. We already have put our finger on this nothing motif. The echoes couldn't be louder to me. So if this is a father-son relationship, is Lucky, do you see him more as Edmund, this kind of abused figure who lashes out? Or Edgar, this kind of noble, inherently decent arm that his father can rest on and rely on? Perhaps it's both. Edmund in the first act, Edgar in the last. I don't know.
1: I feel you could argue both. Kind of like you said, he really is severely like abused and kind of downtrodden in the first half but in the second he actually does come back and he's still with Pozzo at this point even though he is blind he probably yeah. could have gotten away if he wanted to like Potso even discussed selling him at the market i think in the first half uh-huh. but he ended up not and i think it's because he realized he needs him like he's very dependent on lucky um yeah which gives him that sense of loyalty
3: yeah, that rope goes both ways. I mean, Lucky is tied to it, but so is Potso in a way. You know, they're bo- they're ba- bound to each other.
1: Yeah, he can't do anything without him.
3: <laughs> um, do we want to say more about how to live? there's a few other moments in this why don't they kill themselves? This is direct this is this is directly relevant, right? Why don't they kill themselves? Is this just a matter because they seem quite excited about it from time to time like oh we're we're so bored that this would be exciting
2: wouldn't it be fun if we could just kill ourselves you know as something to do it's cuz the belt wasn't big enough that's why i no. mean there
3: are pra- no you i mean there are practical reasons i mean maybe if they had a sturdier bow and stronger rope maybe they would
2: i think it reminds me of oh man i can't remember the author's name right now but how he talks about how we like to complain
3: Oh, this must be Dostoevsky.
2: Yeah, Dostoevsky.
3: Notes notes from underground, yeah.
2: Yeah, it reminds me of Dostoevsky and how we like to complain. Because I know sometimes my nephew and I, we're both tired of school and we're waiting for the summer. And sometimes we talk about, oh, what if we just like dropped out and started our own businesses or something? Like, wouldn't that Mm -hmm. be nice? But we're still both in school this whole time, but we just enjoy that complaining. It gives us a sense of agency. So maybe for them... They they feel alive when they are keeping their lives.
3: Yes, we, we like to know um, it's important to them. Um, it's the best way of phrasing this. I think you're right, Stephen. A world in which you can imagine a worse world is not the worst of all possible worlds. You know what I mean? I don't know if this. I'm slightly probably ricocheted off of your comment. This isn't wasn't exactly your point. They have this mental exercise where like it could get really bad. We could be hanging from this tree, and then maybe that reminds them. Oh yeah, it's not actually as bleak as it could get.
1: I wonder if honestly it's kind of similar to um, the Fault in Our Stars by John Green. You know how there's that one part where I can't remember the characters' names actually because I haven't read it, but. Um, the guy who was played by Ansel Elgort in the movie, he takes that cigarette and he puts it in his mouth and he's like, it's a metaphor. Like I'm never going to actually smoke it, but I have right, the right. power. I have the power to, if I want to. And I'm also resisting the urge. So I wonder if them bringing up, bringing up death in all these ways, because they talk about hanging themselves. They actually also talk about wishing that they were the first among the first to the top um, in act one. Um, it's actually referencing all of the suicides from the Eiffel tower.
3: Oh, say, say more elaborate. I didn't know this. What do you mean?
1: When it was first built, a lot of people actually started climbing up and they just threw themselves Ah. off. They were done with life. I see. And so they're saying like, now they wouldn't let us now they have precautions, all this. Right. But I'm wondering if them talking about it and bringing it up some, so much is partially with, or due to the catharsis of complaining, but also partially, like, we have the power. Uh, right. We couldn't, in that instance, we probably could figure something out here, but uh, I, I think we'll hang on. We'll we'll continue waiting.
3: Yeah, it's another and motivation, right? It's um, We want to talk about doing this just to remind ourselves we have a choice to assert that we have something. We, we could take an action. We are not merely subjected to the whims of a capricious fate. We're not just puppets that's in some kind of deterministic universe. We could, if we wanted to do something, that this might be the only thing we could do, but let's remind ourselves from time to time that we could do it, that that could, yeah, be at play here for sure. I'm going to go to the very last words of the play, but I don't, these aren't the last words that I want to say in our discussion. We're not reading the play, so we don't actually notice if we're not reading it that the very last words of the play on the page are these stage directions. They do not move, Yeah. So let's put this in some context, right? So this is act two ends exactly how act one. Shall we go? Shall we go? Pull on your trousers. Shall we go? Let's go. Shall we go? Yes, let's go. They do not move. This is um, important to me. Why is this important? Those four words, they do not move. (laughs) This is a horrible question. Read my mind. Why are those four words important to me?
1: <laughs> I feel like to me, I don't know if it's the words themselves, but the reason that they don't go rather, I feel like they're kind of hyping themselves up like, okay, let's finally just go out and do something. But instead of leaving what they know and going into risk disc- or risking discomfort to try and pave their own way. You're like, well, we could just stay here and wait some more. We know how that's gonna go. We might not like it always, but it's comfortable. Enough that at that least that we we don't need to worry about, you know, leaving maybe and coming back blind like Pazzo or risking getting lost trying to find Godot if that was even a potential thought. It's safe.
2: I guess for me, it made me think about like, oh no, they're they're just waiting, they're not going out and writing that poem that the world needs to hear. Yeah. They're just sitting around and I'm like this is this is hitting too close to home. I'm just waiting around waiting for Godot, waiting for something good to happen and I that's could be I could be going someplace else instead of standing by a bare tree, but sometimes I feel like that's all I'm doing. It's very
3: rabbit duck. I've talked about this rabbit duck
2: illusion. Is it a rabbit or a
3: duck? Is this a hopeful thing that they don't move? Or is it something, is it, what's the opposite of hopeful? Cynical? Depressing? Yeah, maybe they need to be more active. I think that's absolutely there. But also it's a kind of like, no, we're going to keep waiting. Hope is not extinguished. Gato might come tomorrow. The boy said he's coming tomorrow. So let's wait. Let's keep waiting. Let's have faith that, that he will arrive. Let's not give up on this hope.
0: I think it was towards the end when I finally felt like well, at that moment I realized that their their decision to wait was a victory. Which it, I
3: sorry, I, it was or was not.
0: Was was leading up to it, I'm like, why don't you just go? Why don't you follow the boy back to Gato, you know? <laughs> know where he's going. But yeah, what you said about faith, I think this play teaches you the value of having someone to trust. Mm they have the promise that God will come and their decision to trust him. Maybe that, I mean, does it keep them from committing suicide? That maybe that helps or, or, you know, that's what keeps them from wandering off to who knows where we don't even know, like if they leave, will it actually be any better? Right. Having someone to trust or choosing to trust in somebody's promise, even though, you know, you're being let down, I think there's some value in interesting
3: that's great but also yeah this will be my last word and then i'll ask you if there's anything about this play you wanted to say that you didn't get a chance to trust in your trust in other people trust in the friendship that they have between them trust in this third entity whoever he is whatever it is but also trust in yourself self-trust one maybe my favorite lines in the play are when Vladimir, I I can't remember if it's Tim, asks the blinded Potso, what do you do when you fall far from help? Remember this? Because he's now blind and he enters act two falling on top of lucky and he can't get up for the longest time. So Vladimir asks him, what do you do when you fall far from help? And Potso's response is, we wait till we can get up, then we go on. And I think, wow, this is how we should live. You will... You have, I'm sure, in your lives fallen far from help. This happens to humans. We fall far from help. Even if there is, a, I mean, remember Christ on the cross, you know, why have you forsaken me? This is not to say that there is no God. This is not to say that he doesn't care about us and, and does not send us messengers. All of that is happening in this play. And still we fall far from help. What do we do? What do we do? Well, we wait until we can get up and then we go on. This play teaches me that human dignity is indestructible is indestructible human strength is indestructible you know they couldn't be more impoverished or uh, enfeebled but they can still endure this goes right back to king lear remember what kent says about the old 80 year old king Lear who finally dies the wonder is he hath endured so long i feel the exact same about vladimir and estragon it's a miracle that they've endured so long This is a testament to what humans are immensely strong. You know, immensely, the power of our endurance is
2: cannot be overstated. There's just one line when Cecilia was talking about friendship because they they're both looking the opposite ways and then they turn towards each other and they say like the good old days back to back. Yeah, I don't know. I guess for me that just really hit home. Made me think about my best friends and that relationship. You need someone. You you can't
3: do life alone. You can't do it alone. Yeah, that's another thing this play teaches me. You need life is going to get bleak. You will fall far from help. Potso has Lucky. Lucky has Potso. Didi and Gogo have each other. You can't do this alone. So don't try. Um, thank you all for a great chat. Thank Sounds you. Thank good.
2: you. You too. Bye. Thank,
0: Bye. thank you. Bye.
3: Samuel Beckett wrote poems, as well as plays, and novels. Poems that are as wonderfully strange as Waiting for Gatto. Here's one called More A.D.*, which I suppose maybe could be translated as The Death of Anno Domini. I'm not sure. And there to be there, still there, pressed against my old plank scabbed with black, days and nights blindly ground, to being there and to not fleeing, and fleeing, and being there bent toward the avowal of time dying, of having been what was, does what it did. To me, my friend, dead yesterday, gleaming eye, long teeth, panting in his beard, devouring the life of saints, a life by day of life, reliving in the night its black sins. Dead yesterday, while I lived, and to be there drinking above the storm, the guilt of time irremissible, gripping the old wood witness to departures, witness to returns. Well, that's it. This, at least, is our last discussion of a text. I'll be releasing one quite brief final recording in which I attempt to briefly summarize what I hope you've learned in this course, learned about masterpieces, learned about yourselves, and learned about life. But until then, I hope that you now reach for other masterpieces. Don't stop reading. Pick up a book you've always wanted to read. Follow your tastes. Read what you love. Read what challenges you, what provokes you, what inspires you. Read mostly what delights you. I hope you never stop reading and that you never stop enjoying what you read.